Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their backgrounds. Joining us today is Anna Sophia Hofmeyer, who is an associate professor from Kansai University. Yes, thank you so much for having me. This is actually your fourth appearance on the podcast, although one of them was quite a, a short one. I went back yes. to look at the ones that we had before, and they basically occurred within uh, basically yearly intervals. So uh, 2020, February 2021, February 2022, and mm, okay. this uh, <laughs> podcast is probably going to come out in February uh, 2023. So uh, remarkably consistent. I'm recording this uh, towards the end of uh, 2022, um, just as our New Year holidays technically start. Yes. Has it been a productive, successful year for you? Um, yes, yes, I think so. I started uh, my new position as associate professor at Kansai University, um, so I've been quite busy. Um, and it was also the last year of my uh, research grant, uh, which means kind of wrapping up the research and uh, getting the ideas written down for publication. So I think I think I've been doing all right. And also, uh, if it's the final year, then it's uh, you've probably had to apply for next year as well. And you have to then I did. Yes, yes. I put in another proposal next for next year. So let's see how that goes. Well, good luck to you on that one. Um, the this interview was uh, inspired by the fact that we both recently been uh, featured in uh, a book uh, published uh, through the Sultan Qaboos uh, University and Springer uh, Education. And your chapter in the book uh, is called Incorporating Intercultural Competence uh, into EFL Classrooms, the Case of Japanese Higher Education Institutions. And yes. uh, myself and Jonathan were also lucky enough to be featured and a previous interviewee, Sarah Hopkins, as well. Given that your title right there at the beginning includes incorporating for mm -hmm. intercultural competence in EFL classrooms. Uh, how are you or how will you incorporate the ideas that we're going to go through in this chapter into your classes? Well, um, naturally, this is somewhat of a primary interest for me in my classrooms, given my research. When we talk about these practical ideas, we sometimes forget that teachers often have time and material constraints, curriculum limitations, uh, they need to teach for tests and so on. And also the tendency in foreign language textbooks is to address other cultures more superficially, um, whereas it can be quite dangerous to incorporate brief superficial aspects of culture as an addendum to linguistic competence tasks. So one simple activity that I incorporate into my foreign language classrooms is a discussion of any topic we may encounter in the textbook within a cultural framework. So for instance, if my textbook has a chapter on architecture, I might ask my students to reflect on how architecture is shaped by culture or influenced by culture. I give them the example of a genkan or entrance hall in Japanese houses, which is used specifically to take off your shoes uh, as we do not wear shoes inside Japanese homes. This is a feature of Japanese homes that you wouldn't find, for example, in Portugal, where I'm from. So it sounds like a very complex question, but it comes with a very simple example for students that they can relate to. And then it leads them to think deeper about the role of culture <clears throat> related to architecture. 
And then depending on how much time or flexibility you have, you can set up just a short discussion or a research project or even a presentation on the topic. And while I gave you the example of architecture, this could be used with virtually any topic. You can talk about learning styles, risk management, even fears, phobias, and so on. And just take a cultural, um, a very open cultural approach to that topic. And here the teacher really plays more of a guiding role, directing students to deeper layers of cultural paradigms beyond uh, what's superficial. Then just specifically in the case of my English, uh, classes where my students are expected to work in English. You know, English is not just a goal, it is a medium through which information can be obtained. And so my students are not really limited uh, to discussion or research of cultures from English speaking countries. You know, I often ask students to reflect on their own culture, uh, which they take uh, tend to take for granted and may not even be consciously aware of, uh, if that makes sense. So this type of simple reflective discussion that involves culture um, is just a very simple activity that really opens up possibilities uh, in foreign language classrooms. And that has worked really well to engage my students with other cultures, as well as their own, uh, beyond superficial stereotype descriptions of culture. It's interesting that you bring up the idea of architecture as your example, because mm. when I do a language, uh, I, I teach an intensive language course, um, mm. but I divided it up into various units that you might find if you go through any general newspaper. So we do mm. things like politics, business, uh, media, things like that. But when we get to culture, which is mm. not often a feature of the news, yes, uh, I give them eight different components of things, the difference, like you say, between visual culture and um, more, you know, deeper uh, mm. cultures. And I include architecture and art in that as well. And they generally use, they generally focus on the other ones like language or food, uh, the way yeah. that, that they can- How do people greet? What do they eat? That yeah, kind so the, of. The things mm. that they can see rather yes. than the things that are, that they actually do see every day, but don't think about. And uh, I, I then, pivot from that away towards uh, intercultures. So the way that these visible cultures and invisible cultures are altered by the intersection of different cultures. Yes. Uh, through uh, globalization and things like that. Um, you, you bring up things like uh, fears and phobias, and that's essentially going into metaphysics. Uh, these are things mm -hmm. you, you can't have a you can't have a box of fear that you, no. uh, that you take away unless it includes spiders. So how do you get students to kind of address these larger concepts of culture, to even, even draw those out of them in a second language? Right. You know, we don't start with the discussion on culture. So we start with a discussion on fears. Um, mm. And, you know, it, and it's because, because it is part of my um, EFL classroom, you know, we go through vocabulary, uh, we do a listening or a reading on the topic. Um, so they are gaining more knowledge um, of about fears and thinking, you know, what is a fear? Where does it come from? How does it develop? And then at the end, I add the cultural aspect. So now they have kind of a foundation. They're not, they're not supposed to suddenly think about fear and culture. They have discussed fear and now they add the cultural component to it. 
Uh, the first part of your chapter actually goes through some of the uh, some of the pushback against uh, the use of uh, English as an internationalizing uh, force within Japan. So EFL as internationalization, yeah, doesn't doesn't have a it has a, it has a track record of there being people who are saying, hold on a minute, this is this is not the same thing. They are not analogous. So if you can speak English, right. you're not internationalized, and internationalization is is not only English. How have you kind of addressed that with uh, any any plans that you have to alter your courses? Has there been any resistance to that, either by students or uh, administration, faculty members, things like that? Well, not so far. Let's see after this interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, not so far. Um, you know, students are increasingly more interested in culture. Um, and I think giving them the opportunity to talk about culture and different contents in English rather than just focusing on English is actually quite a refreshing approach for them, especially as they come out of high school. So, so far, no pushback. Uh, hopefully, you know, more and more teachers um, start incorporating culture and this kind of discussions into the classroom in the future. Yeah, well, uh, as someone who has kind of pivoted towards the use of ELF, uh, English as a lingua franca, I think it's an important thing to point out that in the English language doesn't represent a monoculture. And no. so that there are various people, various different countries using it, even as a first language and as a second language or a co-official yes. language, or people like yourself who choose to use it for you know, personal communication, academic communication, yes. mm. and business, and things like that. So it's a it's a it's a wider concept that I think your your chapter really gets into. I'd like to get onto a very specific point that you bring up yes. in your paper uh, on the uh, the topic of SDGs, so uh, mm. Sustainable Development Goals yes. put forward by UNESCO. I see them on many different in many different places in Japan. Uh, as I walk to school this morning, there's a big building site and they have all of their uh, SDGs written up there. They, and how they are everywhere. Yeah. I want to go beyond them as just being buzzwords that corporations and institutions put forward. Uh, how close do you think uh, in Japan that we are achieving noticeable follow through on these goals uh, like in real life, not just on big signs, but what uh, examples of forward progress do you see? All right, so well, you know, this is not just in Japan. Um, universities around the world, even elementary schools, junior high schools are increasingly focused on future-oriented outcomes. And so for this reason, it's really not that odd that uh, the UNESCO's Sustainable Development Goals have started to permeate the educational spheres um, in Japan, especially in Japan, mm. where the funding of universities is often closely tied to these types of uh, globally oriented goals. And, you know, for listeners who are here in Japan, I think it's quite apparent that it's not just the posters. These goals are tied to increasingly tied to academia, mm. you know, research, campus life, partnerships with other universities uh, at the national and international level, sustainability initiatives on campus and so on. Honestly, I cannot tell you how close we are to achieve follow through on these goals, mm. but um, in my students, I certainly notice more awareness of these issues and a clear understanding of necessary changes towards sustainability compared to six years ago when Japan first adopted um, the SDGs agenda. And, you know, just 
before when I taught these classes, I had to start from zero. These were topics that they had never considered. Um, many of them that they didn't know it was an issue outside of Japan. And now there's certainly more awareness. Mm -hmm. So I think because there's more awareness, more students are starting to be conscious of change and necessary change. Um, but you know whether whether change is actually happening, uh, I, I can't tell you. <laughs> Well, I think you're right about the awareness point, because I see uh, we watch, um, you know, a, a news program, a kind of news program. It's mm. a kind of social events uh, program from 7 to 7.45 when my kids leave for school. And at least once a month, there's a news story that comes up that relates to SDGs. So they'll just bring that up. They'll bring up the big multicolored chart and then they'll focus in on one. And my kids certainly are aware of these things mm, so, yeah um, and they're still they're still pretty young uh and also uh in order to prepare for this interview i did uh, go and watch a couple of ted talks on sd uh, sdgs and also went to the japanese uh, government's official website mm. where you can actually uh download uh, hello kitty contributes to sdgs volume seven right now <laughs> so if you're interested uh in that but it's certainly something that the government is clearly tied to and as you say funding for universities is obviously tied to this um yeah. are there any specifics because there are 17 goals 115 um sub yes. uh sub quite indicators, a lot, quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, of certain of things and obviously indicators of how these uh these gauges are set uh, are there any that you think are specifically connected to efl oh Difficult question. Wait, give me a moment. Honestly, no, not directed, uh, not directly related to EFL. Um, I think before I mentioned, you know, that often English is more of a medium uh, rather than a goal, and that's how I see the role of English in relation in relation to the SDGs. Through English, students can access information. Um, you know, not just about SDGs, but about situation around the world beyond Japan. Um, so I see here foreign language education more as giving students the opportunity to access information about the SDGs rather than being directly uh, tied to one of the goals. I also see it as being kind of like a shared lexicon. So mm -hmm. if they're becoming more uh, commonly discussed in other countries and each party to the discussion uh if it is an international communication then if both have become aware of these goals and uh, the various factors and concepts within them from a younger age then maybe that does give them something to talk about like in just on a vocabulary basis yes uh i, I was i wanted to touch on a, a couple uh specifically uh, i mean of course um number four in relation to quality education you don't have to speak specifically about your university, but uh, you've been living now in Japan for 10 years, uh, 10, 15 years? Yeah, 10, 12 years. Yeah. 10, 12 years. Uh, how have you, how would you say that the quality of language education has, well, I don't want to suggest that you're going to say it's improved, but how has it changed uh, in your impression? And do you think that it, um, it is developing in a positive way? Um, yeah, I think change is the right word here. I would say that 
EFL education has broadened since I got here. Um, it used to be, you know, quite narrow and focused on linguistic competence. And I feel that in the past 10 years, there are increasingly more teachers, more schools, more universities that are interested in aspects related to language that are not strictly linguistic competence. And for me, I think this is a very positive development. Of course, I think there are, <laughs> there's still a long way to go. Um, and it's, I'd say there's still it's still a minority, but um, I think it's definitely changing in the right direction or in a more, I would say, positive uh, direction, a direction that, you know, will allow students to be more intercultural and to live in and work in the international arena more successfully. Hmm. Now, you title that part of your chapter Global Citizenship through UNESCO's SDGs. Do you think that, because a lot of these things are very top down, so they are being demanded by the government, they're being instituted yes. by the uh, universities themselves, and then that filters through to the various departments and uh, and then the requirements for the courses that you're teaching. By the time it gets to the students, do you think that they would be able to notice that they are uh, essentially agents of SDGs, or is this something that's only visible or only noticeable when you view it in reverse? No, I think, you know, I'm just speaking from my personal experience, but I think they are starting to notice. Hmm. Um, I think students themselves want to be the change they want to see. Um, you know, they're becoming more active. Um, they feel like change needs to happen and they themselves um, are changing their lifestyles to be that change. Um, so, you know, whether they tie it to these top-down policies, I'm not sure, but certainly at the student level, I think that there's a realization, um, you know, or an awareness that um, they are uh, the agents of change. Yeah, and not even, uh, and I don't want to spend too much time on SDGs, but um, the the quality education, gender equality, uh, mm. decent work, economic growth, reduced yes. inequalities, these are all things that I see coming up, not only in the policies of our, my department, but also uh, the textbooks and online yes. materials that are available. So even if they're not, you know, not titled SDGs, they are yeah. clearly infiltrating various levels of the education strata. Yeah, and students students are aware of the issues that Japan is facing, issues related to gender equality and uh, work conditions and you know, they make that connection and maybe that's the starting point. You know, they see the connection between this goal and Japan and the things that they perceive as needing change in Japan. And then they take it from there. And one more thing I want to pick out from uh, the chapter that's not necessarily related to SDGs, but it is, yeah. it is something about, um, you know, the idea of global citizenship. And you highlight uh, challenges of national identity teacher training and native speakerism, which is something that I've been investigating for 15 years now, starting with uh, my PhD and also with the work that I've done 
um, subsequent to that. Of those three, which one do you choose to focus on the most in your work? In my work, I focus mainly on uh, the challenge of national identity, overcoming this idea that if you learn about other cultures, you become less Japanese. Um, it's it's quite a big issue and it's related to intercultural competence. So that's what I focus on. Um, I haven't done much on teacher training uh, or native speakerism, um, although they are big problems too. Um, so really for me, it's more national identity and just open up the possibility to students that you know they can be Japanese and know about other cultures and have international perspectives at the same time it it can be quite challenging well we're coming up on the 20-year anniversary of the 2003 uh, education department reform which was japanese japanese with english skills that was the kind of policy that was was trying to address this you know two decades ago you don't stop being japanese if you use english so yes, you can you can be Japanese with language abilities, but you don't stop being Japanese. And then and then we get into so like a couple of years later, uh, Halliday with native speakerism and the Koksaika uh, Nihonjin uh, Nong kind of debate of yes. Kubota and others. And I I don't know I I think by the time we get to the the people who you quote uh, in here, so you uh, quoting from. Toyosaki and uh, Eguchi, the Japanese culture still remains visibly homogenous, but it, there, there certainly have been changes to the way that personal identity is expressed through foreign languages, be it English, Korean, Chinese, or uh, mm. whatever they choose, yes. that I think the students today are more confident that they can maintain their Japanese-ness whilst also looking internationally would you say that that's a, a fair a fair impression? I think at the student level yes yes um I would say that at the policy level there's there's still quite a lot of resistance mm. but at the student level as they get to us in university I think so but you know just just to give you an example from my personal life my daughter who is now um first grade elementary school student she uh, she speaks Japanese and English. She looks, you know, not Japanese. Um, and uh, she goes to school and she only speaks Japanese to her friends. And I once came over and I spoke English to her and she said, oh, mommy, don't speak English. My friends don't know I speak English. And, you know, a few days later, she came home and she was crying. And she said, well, my friend said that if I speak English, I'm not Japanese because Japanese people can't speak English. And, you know, she's six and this was her first grade um, classmate. So there's this idea. It's still getting through the cracks somewhere uh, and reaching students somewhere. But by the time they get to university, that seems to be less the case. So hopefully, you know, along that process, this idea that they can be Japanese um, and speak English, communicate in English uh, and, you know, um interact with other cultures all at the same time is possible i think that's kind of a that's kind of something that came up with i have two kids slightly slightly older than uh, yours they're 10 and 12 now um and 
it was certainly something that was a concern when they were kind of that age. I think it's kind of a um, uh, an, an epistemological problem that six-year-olds aren't able to get over, which is, I am Japanese, I don't speak English, therefore, Japanese people don't speak English, yes. rather, the, rather than the other way around, which is mm. that, you know, language is, is not innately a, a, a marker of culture. You can, you can speak other languages and still maintain your Japanese-ness. I, I, and yes. I, I hope, I hope that I, I can see through the relationships that my sons have with their mm. friends. Yes. Because we, we always go and play some soccer and baseball and even cricket in the park mm. uh, at the weekend. And so they get to see me talking English with my sons. They get to see me speaking English with them. Um, yeah. And also some of the other dads who work at the university come and speak some mixture of Japanese and English with me. So the more that, that they become aware of it, I, I think it kind of goes away. But I, I do hope there's, I, there's I, not I think so. And, you know, you know, my daughter learned to deal with it. She told him, you mm. know, I was born in Japan and I speak Japanese and uh, she's kind of, you know, fighting for her own identity, whatever that may be. Mm. And, you know, now a few months later, they, they, you know, they just got used to it. Mm. I speak English and they speak to me in Japanese. I reply in Japanese and they speak to her in Japanese. And sometimes she'll say something in English and teach them. And it's exciting for them. You know, it's, mm. They're six, so they're they also adapt very easily to change. Yeah, it's also uh, just to put a, a, a button on this. I think it's for me, it's fascinating because my research is all in this area of intercultural competence, language teaching, English as a lingua franca, and so actually seeing it in real time with my sons and their friends and mm. this kind of education, it would be um, it'd be terrifying as a as a researcher to have to be focusing on systemic functional linguistics in my office and then having to deal with this uh <laughs> culturally like I I get to the my research and my my mm. life in Japan kind of overlap which is uh uh kind of helpful to keep me focused on what I'm what I'm doing agreed okay well um the next thing I'd like to talk to you about because this was a, a chapter in a book um and I believe that the call for papers went out sometime in 2001 uh, and submit an abstract and an idea and then see if it was accepted. But what was your process for producing this chapter? Did you work from your previous publications to populate contents or was this a newly kind of free written work? You know, overall, this was a newly free written work. Um, my other public publications have emerged from very specific data collected mainly from students. Whereas this one chapter was more of an analysis of the current situation in Japan. Mm. Um, so I really just started by making some notes of ideas that I had from my own personal experiences, uh, from my own research, um, anecdotal evidence from other foreign language teachers at Japanese universities. So I didn't start from a data set or for a, from any kind of results. I just started from uh, the ideas that I had. And then I... I took it just one step further, added some ideas I got from reading about foreign language education in Japan, even if I could not remember uh, the exact reference. And then once I had kind of the skeleton with my main themes, the things I wanted to focus on, only then did I start going through through the literature review notes and, and some other articles to fill in the gaps. But yes, in a sense, it was 
my most spontaneous uh, publication, I would say. You say spontaneous, so did you find it easy to write? I found it easy to decide what I wanted to write about. Then it just, I think it organically grew into that chapter. Um, you know, I didn't, it wasn't forced. It wasn't, oh, I need a methodology here. I need more discussion. It just kind of grew into the topics I wanted to address. What is your procedure for writing? Is it something you set aside a certain time of the week to do? Or is it uh, an open document that you come back to when you have some spare time? How do you address that? Well, I'm working on another <laughs> chapter now, and I've just I've just blocked um, a few hours every day to write. Um, and when I blocked, I mean really blocked. I, I turn off the internet. Um, I don't check emails. I don't take phone calls. Um, and I just write. I do have my notes ready in advance. So before I start writing, I just prepare um, a lot of notes of what I want to talk about, uh, references, quotations. And then when I write, I really just write. I'm not doing any other research. Uh, I'm not looking up references. I'm just focused on the writing. It, it works better for me to get it done quickly. So you prefer to um, go through the whole thing top to yeah, bottom I first time? Yeah, I spent a lot of time on preparation and then... Mm. I write and write and write until it's it's done. And can we have some idea about what this chapter is going to be based on or the, the focus of it, the target of it? Uh, yes, yes. It's, it's about um, the quest for a globally competent human resources in Japan. So this concept of global jinzai um, and uh, historically where it comes from and until the point... Uh, where we are at now mm. and how universities are uh, addressing this and also the challenges faced by universities. Yeah. I've interviewed before, as you know, our uh, common colleague, uh, Annette Bradford, and yes. she has always considered global Jinzai, global human resources to be quite mm. a dehumanizing concept and said that she doesn't like to use it in her writing, even though we kind of have to address it. And yeah. uh, uh, every time that comes up, and I, I knew as soon as I saw Global Jinzai, the next thing that I was going to see was Yonezawa 2014. Yes, that's, yes, it is. That's the go-to uh, reference. You know, would you sell this concept to your students as being human resources? I mean, the, the, the image being that you can take one person who has been globalized and slot them into a position in a... In a, in a company or how would you, if, if a student came to you and said, I don't know how important this intercultural competence is. Mm. I'm, I'm not sure how English is going to assist me in my future work. Yeah. Um, but you, you saw that they had potential. How would you sell it to them instead of calling saying, well, you can be a human resource for the world. Yeah. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't love the terminology, which is why I often qualify it in my writing. So I would say interculturally competent mm. or globally competent human resources. Um, try to add a little bit more, I guess, emotion <laughs> to it. Mm. Um, you know, I just, it, de it depends on the student and really what they want. Mm. And I've discussed this before, but not all students need to be global human resources. Not all students will 
be out there working with international companies or in an international environment. Um, but, you know, for those who say, well, will it be useful to me? You, you need to take it. What, what do you want to do? What are your goals for the future? And there's always something that they'll need to some extent. Japan is becoming more multicultural. Diversity is not just abroad, it's within as well. Um, and it doesn't need to be with people from other cultures. You know, there are different generations, uh, gender, um, you know, there are different kinds of diversity. Um, but mainly, I would tell the student, what do you want to do? And then let's have a look at what you need um, mm. to do that. Um, but definitely not, I wouldn't sell it as, you know, you can be a human resource. <laughs> We can plug you in anywhere. Yes. So, yeah. <laughs> um, are you in a position now to uh, give uh, to counsel students on their, you know, career academic uh, choices? No, I'm not. I'm not currently doing uh, that for work. And you know, there are dedicated career offices that uh, offer students advice. But I do have students uh, that come to me and they say, um, you know, I want. I want to work for this kind of uh, company. You know, what What do I need? Or um, if I do this, will I be able to get this job? I mean, I don't have the answers, but I can give them some pointers about the kind of skills that will be useful to them uh, in the future. Hmm. Well, uh, on the idea of um, career advice, you say you're working on another book chapter now. Myself and John are also doing the same thing. And couple of journal articles and yes uh, of course presentations <laughs> and all, all kinds of other things going on at the same time um there's only so much time in a week given the fact that you know we also have classes and you have two children I have two children um families and trying to balance you know life and work efficiently uh where do you put most of your focus do you are you kind of like in the mid to long term um you know uh, chapter or, or book writing mm. mode or are you in slightly shorter term journal and conference papers? Where do you put most of your energy? That is a complex question. Um, when I started, I think most of my energy was into journal articles. Generally, peer-reviewed articles, particularly in index journals, are highly valued. And, um, you know, while book chapters may sound, you know, fancier, I guess, um, the fact that they are not necessarily peer-reviewed means that they have less on an impact uh, on your CV than a re refereed publication. So when I was looking to move from, you know, um, a contract position to a tenured position, then I was really focusing on journal articles to build on my CV. Mm. Now I'm trying to be a little bit more balanced. The book chapter opportunities just happened to come by, I wasn't particularly thinking of book chapters, but um, these opportunities just came up and, and I was interested. And it gives me the chance to write without, you know, having to collect data, just more of an analysis of the situation. Um, but my research days are for research and writing. And then I have my teaching days where I focus on my teaching. And then I have other days where, you know, I also have to focus on university related work. So um, I try to balance it out as much as possible. Yeah, for me, book chapters, are, they, they kind of come across my desk from people who know people who know me. Yes, yes, exactly. And so I very, I have never gone out 
looking for a particular volume. Yes, uh, exactly. Or... It just it just kind of popped into my radar. Someone was like, "Are you interested?" or uh, "Do you know someone who is interested?" And yeah. And it does help having worked at Ritzmik and APU, where the people who we worked with then went on to go to various places around the world. Yes. <laughs> and then they, when someone says, "Hey, do you want to write this?" And like, "Well, I can't write that, but I know someone who can." And then exactly, where... there's a network, a network. Yes. Yeah, I, I always say that that's the most important thing, and it, it's um, it's one of the things that in really motivated me to get involved in this podcast project mm -hmm. because I knew that I could use this platform to either reconnect with people I've worked with before, like yourself, or to connect with people I have admired and mm. quoted in the past. Or we sometimes get people who contact us and says, hey, hey, I've got this book, I've got this oh, uh, article, excellent. Yeah. and I'd like to promote it. And most of the time, it's something interesting. And so then you get in contact with them. And so I've got people, you know, all around the world now, um, doing, uh, you know, who might invite me to do certain things so that's that's kind of exciting yes. uh 2023 so you are now a, a tenured associate professor at yes. Kansai University mm -hmm. um what are your what are your goals going forward I mean uh you're I've probably asked you this question three years in a row yes and you're I always have different goals <laughs> it's yeah. always something new which is amazing out. to me because like it's only 12 months but uh they do yeah they I don't know I don't quickly. know how I manage yes mm. um well you know we talked a lot about this global in Jinzai global human resources um mm. today um and I told you I put in an application for a different grant for next year um I'm hoping it gets accepted so I really want to focus on uh, students who come back from study abroad programs and what happens to all of these skills that they are supposed to gain abroad once they come back. So what happens to them in terms of reintegrating back into Japanese um, universities, reintegrating back into Japanese society now that their identity might be more um, multicultural? Um, and what happens to these, you know, global human resources skills that basically they went abroad for, when they come back, are they valued by the university? Are they valued by the company? So that's, um, I really hope I can focus on that uh, from next year. And if I do get the grant, it's it's a four-year project. So you might not get a different answer next year if you invite me to come talk here again. Well, I know that in putting together the grant, uh, you have to kind of suggest what might be the projected outcomes of it, but also you have to highlight what you think those uh, intercultural competencies that they might uh, that they might gain during yes. study abroad might be. So just putting forward like uh, prospective outcomes. So yeah. what did you say? So before you do any of the research on it, before you you know get the grants, which I'm sure you will, um, what are your hypotheses about the competencies that can be gained by study abroad? Um, so what I did mention, of course, we're talking about communication skills in a foreign language. Uh, also, the ability to communicate with people from other cultures, not in the sense of linguistic uh, skills, but the ability to relate um, and to change 
cultural paradigms. Uh, so to adapt to a different culture and to different ways of doing things. Mm. Um, so having, I guess, more ways of, more different ways of, uh, of approaching problems uh, in situations, uh, being able to communicate and also just being open and willing and interested uh, in interacting with people from other cultures. Um, so that's, you know, those were the main ones that I was looking at. Um, but, you know, I want to focus less on the study abroad, um, which has been researched thoroughly, and more on what happens when they come back and whether Japan is capable of keep these students that they send abroad or if they decide that they would rather go abroad again. Um, so that's what I what I want to look at. It's interesting that you're doing study abroad um, in the kind of post study abroad because yeah. So my focus has always been on what happens on domestic campuses. So I want to mm. stay with that. Well, I say it's interesting because my proposal for next year is what students do before and during study abroad. <laughs> so um, we're looking at. We should ways... talk. We should talk. <laughs> Well, I assume that if, if this goes well, we will both end up in the same book again in the future, some kind of uh, study abroad and intercultural competency volume. Yes. Um, if you're listening, Multilingual Matters, uh, get, please um, get in touch in 2026. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're going to be looking at uh, ways to prepare students for, you know, uh, you know, low confidence students um, right. and also, uh, you know, giving them materials pre pre Okay. So I'm going to be looking at materials. taking, you know, what, how can university support students once they're back, you know, because mm. they're sent abroad and then they come back. It's like, great, you had your experience. You are now a global human resource. Um, but that's not exactly uh, how things work. So um, how can universities and companies support uh, students once they're back? Okay, well, as a, as a final uh, question, because you, you say companies, so we're talking about post-graduation. Yes. Um, what places kind of do you see opening up in the next five to 10 years for students who have these intercultural competencies? I mean, is there going to be a new role, um, not just being called Jinzai, but they're, that they're actually going to be because the reason I bring this up is because you say that like in institutional terms and in the Department of Education, yes. there's still resistance to this. But yeah. we know that the students who are graduating from our universities are going to be in those positions in the next five to 10 years. They are going to yes. be the institution. They're going to be the decision makers. Right. So do you see that there's going to be a, 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 val a very valuable role for them, or do you think that this resistance is likely too deep to be changed in the in the medium term? Honestly, it's hard to tell. I think some companies have started moving in that direction, but I feel that there is still quite a lot of resistance. In Japan, there is a culture of training students from scratch once they enter a company. Um, you know, so students, uh, can enter a company regardless of their major um, and it's it's kind of a with a blank slate and they're supposed to build their skills that they need for that specific company uh, from there um, and that what makes me more reluctant 
to say, yes, there will be a role for them mm. uh, because the system that's in place is not changing anytime soon that I that I can tell. But there are big companies that are making changes um, and that might influence smaller companies to go in that direction as well. We'll see. Well, excellent. On that positive note, uh, I'd like to thank you for your time today, Anna. And I uh, yeah, thank I you. Sincerely wish that you uh, get your grant in the in the coming months. So we've been speaking today with uh, Anna Sophia Hofmeyer from Kansai University on her chapter "Incorporating Intercultural Competence in EFL Classrooms: The Case of Japanese Higher Education Institutions." And if you're interested in reading this and owning your own hallowed copy of it, you can find it in the book World English's Global Classrooms, where you can also find a chapter by myself and Jonathan Schachter. So uh, it's uh, two for the price of one. So I, I do hope you go and pick it up. So thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. And I hope to speak to you again soon. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.